0: Chapter Thirty One of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Praed. Chapter Thirty One. Mister Valancy's return. The Torres Straits mail boat was steaming at mild speed up the Lakehart River. She had passed the islands which studded the wider channel and was winding between glossy plantations of bananas and fields of pineapples. Further on, the low mangrove-covered banks were almost flush with the water. Here and there a beacon stretched out its long white arms, or a red bowie marked the whereabouts of a sandbank. Now the hills rose more abruptly, and were covered with bungalow-like houses overshadowed by trees, and far-back gardens which seemed to stretch into the shadow of the interminable forest. Every outline was sharply defined against a clear horizon. The westerly wind rippled the water and the air bore that sense of exhilaration peculiar to an Australian winter's day. The passengers on board the boomerang were a motley collection. Fresh arrivals from England or the east, who discussed the doubtful charms of the landscape, bearded squatters from the coast districts, bushmen and their wives going south for a trip dingy commercial travellers and nondescript northern residents clustered in groups upon the deck. While rising from the saloon might be heard the cackle of voices, mingled with rough laughter and imperative calls to the steward for the spirituous refreshment which is a necessity of life on board an Antipodean steamboat. Mr. Valancy had just come up from the saloon, where he had been drinking a glass of brandy at the expense of a fellow-passenger. He was flushed and excited, but nevertheless— MORE STURDY AND RESPECTABLE IN APPEARANCE THAN WHEN HE WAS LAST UPON THE SCENE IN Leichardt's TOWN. THE THREE MONTHS WHICH HE HAD PASSED IN THE NORTHERN WILDS, AWAY FROM THE, TO HIM, baleful INFLUENCES OF CIVILIZATION, HAD IMPROVED HIM BOTH MORALLY AND PHYSICALLY. THE ROUGHNESS OF HIS LIFE, THE FREQUENT EXPOSURE TO DANGER, THE ABSENCE OF TEMPTATION TO NIGHTS OF GAMBLING AND INTEMPERANCE, AND TO PROMISCUOUS INDULGENCE IN SPIRITS AND TOBACCO, had already imparted a more manly, self-reliant expression to his face, and had stirred in his heart a softer longing for domestic happiness than he had known in years. He had never since their marriage been so long separated from his wife, and, as is often the case with irritable self-indulgent natures, he missed her in a manner surprising to himself. Without her presence existence seemed flat, and lacked the daily stimulus of her scorn or languid approval, her anger or indifference. A hundred times in the day, her face, with its charm of varying expression, rose before his imagination's eye. He resolved strenuously upon an amended mode of life. Her companionship would, he reflected, make his god-forsaken abode tolerable, and he assured himself that, dependent upon her for society, and relieved from the pressure of monetary difficulties, his conduct as a husband would be everything that was exemplary. He was on the point of writing to Mrs. Valancy, promising altered behavior. He had determined upon appealing to her wifely duty, and on begging her to make the earliest arrangements possible for joining him at Gundaroo, when an anonymous letter received one morning by the Southern Mail disturbed the current of his self-communings and partially dissipated his vision of conjugal contentment. The epistle, written in a studied copperplate hand, with occasional faults of diction that betrayed an uneducated source, ran as follows. Sir, I hope you will pardon the liberty I take in addressing you, which is done entirely for your good and for the sake of fair dealing and honour, as I believe you are not aware of the position you are in, and it goes again my moral principles to see a gentleman who I knows to be a gentleman fooled by them as sets themselves up to make laws for poor folk, and ain't no better than they should be. It is no secret that the Premier had a fight with his colleagues to get you that appointment at Gondoroo, which I make no doubt you had your own reasons for accepting, If I may be so bold, I will say that it would have been wiser if you had declined to put yourself under obligations to one who was meditating a wrong against you, and if you had stayed at home to look sharp after your handsome wife, or better still, if you had hoaxed the premier by taking her with you. Now you know what everyone in Leckhardt's town is well aware on. The whole thing was planned between Longleat and Mrs. V. before the post was offered you. They wanted to get you away to a place where you would not be likely to hear what was going on behind your back. You'd best know what money you left in her possession, and whether it were enough to buy the smart gowns and the new jewellery that she wears, and to pay the debts that bothered her and which I have reason for saying are discharged. And I can swear as gospel truth that when L. is in Leichardt's town, not a day passes without his crossing the water and spending hours on Emu Point.' I HAVE GOT NO MOTIVE TO SERVE IN GIVING YOU THIS INFORMATION EXCEPT, AS I SAID BEFORE, THAT I AM A MAN OF MORAL PRINCIPLES, AND KNOW YOUR FAMILY, SO THAT IT RILES ME TO SEE YOU GULLED. AND SO, SIR, YOU CAN TAKE WHAT NOTICE YOU PLEASE OF THIS LETTER. YOUR HUMBLE, WELL-WISHER. A GENTLEMANLY INSTINCT, FAINT, STILL INHERENT IN VALANCY, WAS SUFFICIENTLY POWERFUL TO PROMPT HIM AT FIRST TO THROW THE LETTER IN THE FIRE, AND TO TREAT ITS CONTENTS WITH THE SCORN THAT AN ANONYMOUS IMPUTATION DESERVED but something held him back from destroying it. He read it again, and then many times, till he knew each word by heart, and drank brandy and water while he read and pondered, till he almost convinced himself that the accusation had been made in good faith, and that he had in truth been befooled, a position not to be endured by a gentleman of spirit. It was, of course, no secret to him that Connie's influence had procured him the appointment at Gundaroo and he had seen no more shame in accepting the place than he had done in borrowing money from Brian Fielding. But then, in spite of her vanity and love of admiration and her openly shown indifference to himself, he had always believed that their interests were identical, and that in her heart she entertained for him a lurking regard. Genuine doubt of his wife's fidelity had never entered his mind. A conceited man is always tenacious of his own supremacy. Now that he had conceived the idea of mistrust, It grew with amazing rapidity. He recalled certain passionate words uttered by his wife in a moment of irritation, which confirmed the suspicion that he had been bribed to go away, and that Connie had never really intended to join him at Gundaroo. A thousand inculpatory circumstances rose to his recollection and deepened the sense of injury. This brooding over imaginary wrong inflamed his wrath and jealousy. As days went on, he became more and more furious under the feeling of impotency. When, a fortnight later, a chance mail brought a second epistle from his anonymous correspondent, he hesitated no longer, but rode to the nearest point from which telegraphic communication with headquarters was possible, and wired to the chief of his department for leave of absence, a request which, as we have seen, was granted. As he neared Leckhart's town, Valancy's impatience intensified till it became almost past control. He eagerly inquired at the different ports for information concerning the Premier's movements, with difficulty restraining his anxiety in order to avoid implicating his wife, then putting himself to unnecessary torture by imagining veiled innuendos in the replies to his somewhat wild questioning. His imagination worked wildly in conjectures concerning the relations of Longleat and Constance, and he mentally mapped out various plans of action. Should he walk boldly to the house, as though no suspicion were in his mind, or should he lie in wait and surprise a rendezvous? Then he told himself that of course the premier was aware of his application for leave of absence. Nay, the very fact of its having been granted went a little way towards quelling his apprehensions. He cursed his folly in not having surprised the position unawares. Doubtless all precautions had been taken, and he should find Connie armed at every point. Finally, he determined to be guided by her manner as to the course he would pursue. He almost resolved that he would bid her prepare to accompany him to Gundaroo by the next boat, and if she refused, he would show her the anonymous letters and tax her boldly with her guilt. He would crush her with fierce reproaches, and would then cast her off in her shame. With all a coward's hesitation he shrank from personal encounter with Longleat. It would be easier to confront the woman who had wronged him and who was more or less in his power. The steamer carried the English mail, and a greater crowd than usual had assembled to greet her arrival. Friendly handkerchiefs were waved from the various dwellings which sloped to the water's edge, as she steamed slowly round Emu Point, and prepared to moor at the wharf which was situated close to the ferry. Taking advantage of a momentary stoppage of the screw, and of the confusion on deck, Valancy threw his portmanteau into one of the small skiffs which crowded around the steamer, and bade the boatman row him to the ferry steps, calculating that he would thus gain a few minutes and avoid recognition on the wharf. It was just possible that his wife might not have been warned of his arrival. He threw the boatman a shilling and, leaving his portmanteau at the ferry-house, walked with beating heart up the hill and along the white road, past the row of neat Venetian houses with their trim gardens and sheltering foliage of pine and bamboo, till he reached the wicket-gate which admitted him to his wife's abode. The veranda was empty, and the windows of the drawing-room were closed. Like all Australian dwellings, the cottage might easily have been entered unperceived. Skirting the veranda, he caught a glimpse of the light drapery of Mrs. Valancy's handmaiden as she stooped to spread some fine laces upon the grass at the rear of the house. But of his wife's presence there was no sign. He softly pushed open one of the Venetian shutters and peered into the drawing-room. The strong scent of gardenias, A perfume which irresistibly recalled Connie floated towards him, but she was not there. The piano was unclosed, and a library novel lay with a page turned down upon the sofa. With the quick instant of jealousy, Valancy noticed some unfamiliar expensive trifles scattered about the tables. On the mantel-shelf were two pink tickets for a performance by some operatic artists, lately arrived from Sydney, which he divined that the premier had given her. "'Constance!' he called almost below his breath, half-hoping, half-dreading that she would reply, but there was no answer. He looked into the dining-room, and then into her bedroom, which was empty like the rest, but here there were signs of recent occupation. Her handkerchief lay upon the floor, her garden-hat hung upon the wall. In a tray upon the toilet-table there were several costly rings, and a large locket of plain gold with a cross of pearls upon the oval— WHICH HE DID NOT REMEMBER TO HAVE SEEN BEFORE. HE LINGERED FOR SOME MINUTES IN THE CHAMBER, TURNING OVER HER VARIOUS PROPERTIES WITH A STRANGE MINGLING OF TENDERNESS AND FURY. THEN HE RETURNED TO THE DRAWING-ROOM AND PROCEEDED TO INSPECT IT MORE PARTICULARLY, SEIZING UPON THE LOOSE NOTES IN MRS. VALANCY'S WORK-BASKET IN THE HOPE OF DISCOVERING A CLUE TO HER WHEREABOUTS. THEY WERE MERELY TRIVIAL SOCIAL AND BUSINESS COMMUNICATIONS, AND TOLD HIM NOTHING. There was a large-coloured photograph of Thomas Longleat in a velvet frame upon her writing-table. In a fit of fury, Valency seized it and tore the print to atoms. Presently his attention was attracted by a blue official-looking envelope, resting face downwards upon the table. It was sealed with the arms of Leichardt's land. He turned it over, and saw that it was addressed in the Premier's handwriting to Mrs. Valency and marked, Immediate. He tore open the letter and read it eagerly. His face changed. A muttered curse escaped his lips, and he fell heavily upon a chair as though he had been struck by a blow. The letter contained the confirmation of his wife's guilt. End of chapter 31 Read by Céline